gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. It is a joy to be with you here this last day of 2023. I, uh, on days like this, I can't help but think how fast time is going. I just had a conversation with a new dad this morning that said having kids just amplifies the speed of time somehow. I don't understand it exactly, but the older you get, and as we're now expecting a second grandchild, time is just flying by. And in fact, I can't believe that we are 12 months away from it being a quarter of a century ago when the world was supposed to end coming into 2000, right? I cannot believe how fast time is going, but if you remember back, some of you remember back New Year's Eve 1999, and we were out at the Ebenezer that we had just installed and dedicated that night. How many of you old people were here with us, or younger people, mature people? Excellent. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. But the Ebenezer is located right out here in the center of now what is the columbarium, and it's right across the driveway there from our children's playground. And the word Ebenezer means this. It means a stone of help. And in the scriptures, an Ebenezer was constructed because of a desire to remember. The Lord told them, build this here to remember, to consecrate, to remember what was going on, remember what the Lord had done. And, it, and not just for a few days or a few years, but for generations to come, that when they came to that spot, they would see that gathering of the stones and they would remember the things of the Lord. They would remember what the Lord had done. And that's why we have an Ebenezer out there, to remember to remember what the, that, that the Lord is our stone of help. And without Him, both individually and corporately as our church, we can accomplish nothing. But you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of that as we as staff drive by that thing out there, that Ebenezer, a lot of times day after day, that we as a church drive by that gathering of stones out there, maybe week after week, we see it, we think that, oh, that's a pretty cool structure, or oh, the landscaping looks real nice around that, and our focus is on so many other things that we don't remember that the Lord is our help, and that we don't remember that we are in constant need of that help. But that Ebenezer, it's a reminder for us to recall the things of the Lord and what He has done for us. And it's a time, what it's, what it's intended for, it's a time to do what? But to, to reflect, to remember, to, to even recharge and reevaluate where we are in our walk with the Lord. Today, I want to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul is addressing the church at Corinth with a history lesson of the past and a warning for the future, and that's what I have entitled our sermon this morning, is just that. Lessons of the past, warnings for the future. It's 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13 is the text that we'll be looking at. And as you turn there or look that passage up, I want to read to you what John MacArthur said about this specific portion of the text. Verses 1 through, this is how he described it or summarized it so you can get a little bit of an understanding before we dive in deeper, like an, an overview here. This is what John MacArthur said. He said, ancient Israel's 40-year journey between Egypt and Canaan is a sobering illustration 
of misuse of freedom and the danger of overconfidence, the Israelites misused their newfound freedom, fell into idolatry, immorality, and rebelliousness, disqualifying themselves from receiving the Lord's blessing. So why does Paul choose at this time, in this letter to the Corinthians, to take a turn down memory lane, or turn down history lane, concerning the children of Israel and their 40 years of wandering through the wilderness? First, let's not forget the location of this church and the culture in which they are right in the middle of. For the sake of time, I will not go into great detail concerning the culture of Corinth, but one biblical scholar described Corinth like this. Even by pagan standards of its own culture, Corinth became so morally corrupt that its own name became synonymous with debauchery and moral depravity. To Corinthianize came to represent gross immorality and drunken debauchery. So this is the culture in which all of these first-generation Christians, these first-generation believers came out of. They came out of a hedonistic, self-serving, self-gratifying, depraved culture that not only accepted all types of immorality and, 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 and behavior as just normal, they didn't, they didn't just accept it, they expected it. And Paul earlier in this letter to the church says after, after he lists a whole bunch of sins that says, hey, this, this is not to be seen within the church. These sins are not to be represented of you now. But he also says this, and so were some of you. See, this is the culture that they came out of. This church is a gathering of believers that, was, that did not come unscathed from the Corinthian culture. They were damaged, they were broken, but they were redeemed. It's a great, great story. And so were some of you. That's an awesome picture of the redemption of Christ that removes us from that depravity and that sin and makes us a new creation. And Paul goes into this history lesson and this warning, having dedicated this, the previous 700 words of his letter, which is all of chapter 9, to this issue of surrendering rights. Surrendering his rights and the appeal for self-discipline. In fact, verse 27 of chapter 9 says this, right before we get into chapter 10, Paul says this, but I would discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself would be disqualified. Paul transitions from this appeal of of self-discipline and, and, and to live for the Lord. And he transitions. He says to be self-disciplined and, and live for the Lord and live by the word in contrast to living for self in opposition to the Lord and in love with the world. Please follow along this morning as I read 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and, that, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. 
for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's dive into this passage and just go through it verse by verse and understand what Paul is trying to share with the Corinthian church, what he is making his appeal to them. In verse 1, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware. Bottom line, he's saying, understand this, get this, know this, remember this, focus on this, pay attention to this. I don't want you to be unaware. Let me take a little sidebar just for a moment. You know, my biggest problem that I would define concerning the Scriptures is, is in fact, it's not not being aware. Don't get me wrong. I can still learn plenty from the Scriptures, and we all can. We can never learn all that we need to from the Word. But what I mean is this, as my biggest problem is not disciplining myself in surrender to already do what I already know. Anyone else able to relate to that? Okay, back to the text. That one was for free. All right. Paul continues in verse 1 by saying this. Remember, he just said, hey, I don't want you to be unaware. He continues verse 1 saying, our fathers. He wanted to let, him know, let them know, let the church know who he was talking about. Ancient Israel. In fact, the actual physical ancestors of Paul as he was a direct descendant. So, he's talking about ancient Israel and he gets into this lesson of the past so he sets the stage here. I'm talking about ancient Israel. And Paul, in verses 1, the, the middle of verse 1 through the end of verse 4, Paul gives three incredible verses of description of the blessings that the children of Israel had. The blessings that they had. F follow along with me. And I'm going to, here's a warning. I'm going to bounce back and forth to the Old Testament most, uh, a lot. And I'm going to reference it. I'm not going to go back and read, and, and, and hopefully, Lord willing, I'm not going to confuse you. But what I am going to reference is, hey, this passage is referring to this. This passage is referring to this. So if you're taking notes, write down those chapters in the Old Testament, because I'm going to summarize a lot of them. I'm not going to read them for you for the sake of time. But here is what Paul is talking about as the blessings that the children of Israel had. In verse 1, he says this, they were all under the cloud. This is referring back to Exodus 13. And having God's presence guide them by a cloud during the day and the pillar of fire by night. And then and continues in verse 1, and all passed through the sea. But notice the word all. We see it repeated for the second time here. And we'll also see it repeated three more times in this very short section of, of Scripture. And Paul is emphasizing all, every single member of that nation that he, God, chose was benefiting from these things. 
These blessings were not meant just for the elite, the rich, for Aaron, for Moses, for the the special, the priest, the powerful. They were meant for everyone. Continue on. It says they all passed through the sea. This is referring back to Exodus 14 and having God's protection as, as they fled Egypt or as they left Egypt with having the Red Sea open up and the, and the children of Israel walk through on dry ground and then the sea collapsing in on the Egyptian army as they were bearing down on them. You see God's protection. Verse 2, he says, all baptized, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and sea. This refers to them identifying with Moses as God's anointed and appointed leader for them and being brought under the obligations of the Mosaic law and covenant and those promises of God. In verse 3, it continues, says, all ate the same spiritual food. This refers to God providing physical food supernaturally. This is not like in other parts of the Scripture, New Testament, where metaphorically it might say the meat of the Word uh, compared to the milk of the world, the Word. Those are the metaphors. This is not. This is God literally providing physical food, manna, that would sustain them physically. It was through His supernatural spiritual power that all of this became a physical reality for them. Verse 4 says they all drank the same spiritual drink. This refers again to God providing physical drink for them through supernatural power. Verse 5, here's another description, or verse 4, excuse me, continues. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, this is a little bit of a, a confusing phrasing in this. In fact, because of this verse, there's a Jewish, or excuse me, he references this because there's a Jewish tradition that the physical rock itself that Moses struck for the water to come out in Exodus 17, 6, there's a Jewish tradition that says that rock literally followed the children of Israel. Or the water, the stream from that rock followed them as they journeyed through the wilderness. But here the word rock is Petra and refers to a massive cliff signifying the pre-incarnate Christ who protected them, who sustained them, who cared for them. He attended to them. He ministered to them. He went before them and led them, and on occasion, in protection, he followed them. And when needed, he satisfied their needs and their thirst. I mean, how incredible in these two and a half verses the blessings that Paul reiterates of what the children of Israel experienced. God's presence, His protection, His promise, His provision, and the pre-incarnate Christ. They had all of that. And if, if we need a reminder, it was all undeserved. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9, it says this about the children of Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because... 
the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty, out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with all those that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That does not sound like deserved blessing. In fact, it's not deserved blessing. God did not choose them as his people for any other reason than that he chose them to just love them and is keeping his oath, keeping his word. They did nothing to deserve his love. Just like everyone in that church of Corinth did nothing to deserve his love. And just like all of us this morning here in Heritage Baptist Church have done nothing to deserve the love of Christ and the love of God. Paul is reminding his audience that the Israelites, again, had God's presence, his protection, his promise, his provision, and God, the very son with them, just like we have. They had privilege beyond explanation. Nevertheless, look at verse five. Nevertheless, what a tragic word. Anytime you hear a word like, anytime you hear that, it means something's about, to change, something's about to change. If things are going poorly or the odds are stacked against someone in a story and you hear a story and then it goes, nevertheless, you get excited because you know they've overcome the odds and they prevailed. But if things are going great and someone has everything going for them and they're set up for success and you hear the word, nevertheless, you know things are about to go sideways. Things are about to take a turn for the worse. And you know automatically, if in your mind, you know that in some way the potential that was there would not be reached. And the children of Israel, with all of God's blessing, care, provision, protection, and more importantly, his presence, nevertheless, listen to what it says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Could I just say that, this, that that phrase there is probably one of the most understated phrases that I know of in Scripture? Because you have to ask yourself, well, how not pleased was God? Well, it says in the rest of verse 5, most were overthrown in the wilderness. Again, another understatement, but what Paul is referring to here, listen to this, Paul was referring to here that all men, all of the men that left Egypt, age 19 and up, all of them died in the wilderness before reaching the promised land except for two, Joshua and Caleb. So tragic. All of the blessing, and yet their behavior displeased God. And this is, and this is why Paul started this section of this letter to the Corinthian church of saying, I don't want you to be aware, unaware, sorry. I don't want you to be unaware. Get this, know this, understand this. If Israel with all of the blessing and privilege and presence of God can turn away and displease the Lord, so can you. And so can I. So get it. Pay attention. Be aware. Be aware of what? Verse 6 continues. Now these things took place as an example for us. Well, what things took place? Death in the wilderness. 
the missing of the promised land to show us that sin has consequences. Failure to be self-disciplined and then indulging in the world and the culture around you has drastic consequences. Remember the culture surrounding the Corinthian church. Failure to be self-disciplined from that culture and all that is involved in that culture as he's speaking to the Corinthian church will have massive consequences. Verse 6 goes on, and, and Paul sheds more light on why God was not pleased. And specifically, he says this. It gives us this reason as, as to why these things took place as an example, that we might not desire evil as they did. You see, it's getting more and more specific. They didn't please the Lord. This stuff was given to us an example, consequences for our behavior, and why did he write this down? Why are these examples given and recorded and mentioned in Scripture? So that we will not love evil or desire evil as they did. The warning is clear from these lessons with all that the Israelites had in God. They chose their desire for evil over God. They had a choice to serve, love, honor, obey, and desire the very God that walked hand in hand with them, and yet they chose to desire evil. And the word desire in this, it's a strong, it's a reference to a strong desire, like a lustful craving for something. That was their desire for evil, and God desired that they find contentment and pleasure in Him, and yet they craved and found their pleasure in the very opposite thing of God Himself, evil. Paul then moves on to verse 7 through 10 as he even gets more and more specific to his audience in Corinth, and he gives the audience of this letter a greater detailed explanation of the evil that displeased the Lord, and he mentions four specific sins that really, I'll almost say, characterize so much of the life of the children of Israel as they wandered in that desert and beyond that time frame. And those four are idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God and grumbling. Let's look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. These next four, these four verses, each one of them describes one of these sins, and each one of them refers back to specifically an Old Testament biblical account, a true account of history that he is reminding them of as he mentions these things. And idolatry here, idolatry easily defined as the worship of idols. But here, it's also defined as this, extreme adoration, admiration, love, or reverence for something. Keep that definition in mind as we talk about this sin for a moment. See, what is being referenced here in verse 7 as he references this or talks through this here in 1 Corinthians, and actually goes into verse 8 as well, is the true account of the worship of the golden calf found in Exodus 32. You see, in Exodus 32, Moses is up on the mountain getting word from the Lord. And in verse 1, it all starts to go wrong. In verse 1, it says this, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. The impatience of the children of God to wait on Moses, to wait on the Lord. So they took matters into their own hands. I mean, why wait for God when we can do it better ourselves, right? 
in verses two through four, Aaron agrees and builds the golden calf. And this is what he says. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Are you kidding me with that statement? In one statement of arrogance and stupidity, they gave credit for the presence of God, the protection of God, the provision of God, the promises of God. They gave all of that credit to something they just built and made with their own hands. What an insult to Almighty God. And as if things couldn't get worse, Aaron made sure they did in verse 5. Aaron built an altar and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. What? A feast to the Lord? See, this is, and this is what they did in verse 6. They gathered early, offered burnt sacrifices, and brought peace offerings. And the people feasted and then rose to play. That's, a, that's Exodus 32, 1 through 6. Now, this is something called syncretism. This is the blending of, of two or more religious systems into a new system. It's like you don't really know who to worship or what exactly, so we'll take some things from this God and this religion, and we'll take some things from this God and this religion, and we'll, uh, yeah, we'll take some things from that Yahweh established, and we'll just blend them all together, and we'll, we'll hit all the buttons. We'll make sure everyone's pleased. They had burnt offerings and peace offerings, which Yahweh established. But at the same time, they were worshiping a golden calf idol that they celebrated with a pagan festival of eating and drinking all day. And then it says they rose up to play. This rose up to play is participating in drunken debauchery and sexual immorality as worship. Does anyone even believe for a moment that that pleased a holy God? But verse 7 tells us that it did not please the Lord because in verse 7 of Exodus 32, as God is talking with Moses on the mountain, God says this of his people, and he's dialoguing with Moses, but he says this, they have corrupted themselves. That phrase, they have corrupted themselves, they, they are not pure, they have not remained sanctified or set apart to me, they have violated my standards of holiness, they have stopped worshiping me. The people got impatient. They looked around and saw the culture of the day and they took matters into their own hands. They, they corrupted themselves by selfishly doing the things of the world by lustfully desiring evil and not worshiping the true God. Friends, if I'm honest with you this morning, I'm not afraid that heading into 2024 that any of you are going to melt down your gold and form a golden calf or an idol and start worshiping it. But I do believe that some already are involved in or in danger of becoming involved in idol worship, and that idol is the reverence, love, admiration, and extreme adoration of self and the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 does a masterful job of describing to us what it means, this culture of the world, and to love the world. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the, of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of this world. Do not love the things of the world or the world itself. Church, don't look around and fall in love with the culture, the ideas and the philosophy and the way of this world. 
The world does appear attractive. The world does appear appealing. But it is shallow, it is deceptive, it is evil, it is harmful, it is destructive, it is temporary, and it is in direct opposition of the things of the Lord. The Lord, or this is why it says, excuse me, if anyone, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen, this is not talking about a one-time sin, but it's talking about a heart of desire and lust and passion for the things of the world. You cannot, at your core, have a lust and desire and appeal and a longing and a, and a lustful craving for the things of the world and be filled with a holy, righteous God at the same time. So what are the things of the world that we need not love? I love this list here in 1 John 2, 15 and 16 because it is not specific and yet it is so specific at the same time. You see, God knows how we think. God knows how I think and how people look for loopholes. And instead of giving this laundry list of specific sins that we can sit there and say, okay, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Ooh, this one's not listed. Yes! He lists them all by saying these three phrases. The desire of the flesh. The lustful cravings of the flesh. It's the appetite to indulge in passions of the flesh through food, drink, sex, pleasures of any kind met in ungodly and unbiblical ways. The next one is the desire of the eyes. This is the lustful craving of the eyes. It's the eyes that are craving for riches and treasures and extravagance. It's an eye of covetousness that cannot be satisfied. It's an eye that is set on what you do not have. And then the pride of life. It's the possessions of life. But this is referring to so much more than just stuff. It is, the, it is the arrogance over one's circumstances. It's the ambition for praise and glory and honor and applause and, and admiration found through possessions, position, power, or perception. And do you know what is at the center of all three of these things? Me, myself, and I. It's about us. Idolatry and love of the world really comes down to self-worship. It comes down to submitting to no one, especially God. I want what the world wants. I want to live how the world lives. I want to be noticed. I deserve better. I know better than the Lord. I know better than his design. I know better than his timing. It's self-worship. This is what I fear for some of us sitting in this room today. This is what I fear for myself. Self-worship and living for self that will take us into corruption and it will end in a disaster. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. You can have the word or you can have the world, but you cannot have them both. Back to our text. In verse 8, tells us of the second sin that they struggled with. And it says this, that we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. You know, out of the worship of self, morals are always compromised. When we get our eyes off the Lord and focus on ourselves, there are no bounds to our sexual depravity. Because when man's heart sets the rules, the depravity is endless. And I know some of you might be thinking, yeah, look at the world today. 
time out. Before you look at the world today, look at the mirror. I don't know if that's too harsh to say. But we do a great job of taking Scripture a lot of times and pointing elsewhere instead of pointing at ourselves. Because God clearly knows this and He warns us about the following of our heart for anything. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Matthew 7, 20 through 23 says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, uh, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. See, so when we worship self, when we think we know better than the Word, when we think we know better than God Himself and we follow our hearts, disaster is coming. You know, the worst advice that you could ever give someone or give yourself is just follow your heart. You, you mean follow what is deceitful, desperately sick, not able to be understood, leads to sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, deceit, wickedness, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and evil. That heart, that sounds like wonderful advice, isn't it? I believe one of the fastest ways to see who is on the throne of our life, whether it be God or whether it be self, is to evaluate if our standards are in line with God's Word, especially in the area of sexual immorality and purity. In this idolatry that's referenced here and this drunken debauchery of sexual immorality that was part of this idol worship, God did not take it lightly then, and God does not take worship of anything, if it's ourselves, anything other than Him lightly today. The rest of verse 8 in our passage says, and 23,000 fell in a single day. In Exodus 32, it continues this account and shows that 23,000 of those idolaters and those sexually immoral that day, those people died, 23,000 of them, either by sword or by plague. I'm not saying that God's going to strike you dead if you make yourself an idol or immoral, but I think it is very clear to understand and know this, that the worship of anyone or anything other than God always results in terrible circumstances, even if those circumstances are not realized until death and an eternal separation from the very God that you refuse to worship here on this earth. You can't play and dabble in sin and expect to walk with the Lord. It is impossible. Verse 9 moves on to the third sin listed, and that's text, testing. Sorry, not texting God. Testing, testing God. It says, we must not put Christ to the test as some did and were destroyed by serpents. Listen, this is very clear, and I want to make this point. This is not the same thing of bringing your questions or doubts or brokenness or struggles to the Lord. Because all throughout scriptures, we see many that question the Lord, that call out to Him in doubt, that share even their unbelief, and they are not condemned for doing such. This is different. What Paul is referring to here in this passage is found in Numbers 21, verses 1 through 9, if you want to write that down. Numbers 21, verses 1 through 9, and this is what happens. I'll summarize it. In verses 1 through 3, there's a battle. Israelite 
Israelites' uh, captives are taken. Israel prays to the Lord. They vow things to the Lord. The Lord answers with a victory. The captives are saved. uh, And the Israelites do what they tell the Lord they're going to do. Then there's a season of time that happens between verse 3 and verse 4. And as verse 4 begins, Israel resumes their trek. And they, they head out from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And this is a land that's forbidden for them to go through. And God tells Moses the direction that they're supposed to go in Deuteronomy 12, or 2.1. So Moses is leading in that direction. He's walking in obedience, even though the trek is difficult, the terrain is challenging, it's unforgiving. And in verse 5, here's the people. The people question and say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And in this aspect of their sin of testing God, this is what the children of God directly do. They question God's motive, they question God's direction, they question God's provision, and they question God's care. And in questioning his motive, they question his goodness. And in questioning God's direction, they question his understanding and knowledge. And in questioning God's provision, they question his power. And in questioning God's care, they question his compassion and love. And what they've done is question the very character of who God is. This is not complaining, we've had manna for 38 years, can we have something else? This isn't complaining about bad food. This is complaining and basically mischaracterizing Yahweh. The holy, righteous, loving, gracious, merciful, providing God. And God punished them in verse 6 of that passage by bringing serpents or poisonous snakes among their midst. And in verse 7, the people, it says this, people came to Moses and said, for we have sinned, for we have, here's the phrase, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. This sin was not merely complaining. This sin was a rebellion of the heart and the mind and an attitude of mistrust of the very God that loved them and cared for them. And if you remember in the story, Moses that was then told to put a staff, have, have, uh, put a serpent on it or make a snake and attach it to there and present that in front of the people. And if the people looked up on that by placing their faith in God of saying, I will do this in faith because this is what the Lord has told us to do, they would be, they would be saved. They would not die from the snake bites. But this is, this is a representation of, of Christ being lifted up, of, of taking our rebellious hearts and putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It required replacing that rebellion with a heart of submission and faith to the Lord, and they would be saved. The last sin that we see here in verse 10 is grumbling. Verse 10 says, nor grumble as some did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And Paul is referring back to Numbers 16 verses 3 through 41. Let me read that entire chapter for, no, I'm just kidding. For the sake of time, let me summarize again. And this is the story of Korah. And if you go back and read it, here's the bottom line to it. Korah 
had responsibilities within the tabernacle. He worked within the tabernacle. He wanted more and he was dissatisfied. He gathered 250 of his closest complainers with him and they went to Moses and Aaron and Moses' response to him was, your complaint is not against Moses and Aaron, it's against the Lord. And tomorrow we will see the Lord will choose who his man is. The next day is where you find the account of where the ground opened up and consumed Korah. All of his possessions, all of his family, everything consumed him and those 250 other complainers that went with him. Fire from heaven came down and consumed them. And then, shockingly, the next day, the people grumbled against Moses. Sometimes I don't understand the children of Israel, but sometimes I don't understand me. The next day after seeing this, they grumbled and 14,700 people died that day. Go back and read the account because it's fascinating and terrifying in its entirety. The day after they witnessed the ground opening up and swallowing this man, and fire from heaven, they grumbled and complained. And the definition of grumbling is this, the expression of dissatisfaction or annoyance about something. How often do we grumble and complain and are dissatisfied because our expectations are not met? Our expectations in the Lord are not met. Our expectations in God, I'm trying to do this, or God, why aren't you providing, or God, I expected, or I expected of others, and we grumble and we murmur and complain in dissatisfaction. And Philippians 2 says, do all things without grumbling and question that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We are supposed to be light in this world, and one of the greatest ways we can be a light in this world is to not grumble and complain to be satisfied in the Lord and to demonstrate that. As we move out of these lessons of the past, here's the warnings. Because in verse 11 of our passage this morning, Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example. Same phrasing as in verse 6, these things happened as an example. And then Paul even went in verse 11, he says, they were written down for our instruction. Listen, nothing in Scripture is written down in vain. God in His wisdom and in His graciousness to us uh, leaves us the history of the children of Israel in the wilderness. He leaves this warning for us as an example. And in our, in our wisdom and our responsibility, we need to receive that instruction. We need to pay attention to the example we need to hear the, the admonitions within that. But verse 11 even goes further and says it's because we are in the end of the ages. We are in the church age. We are in that time between Christ after his resurrection ascending to the Father and we're waiting for his return. We are in the last part of the, redempt, the last days of redemptive history. We need to learn from the example. In verse 12, here's the warning. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul knows how we think. Some of us think, no worries, I got this. But you look in that little phrase, take heed lest, lest he fall. Or therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, he, I have the power to do it. I'm good, no worries, I got this, God. What gives us any thought or understanding that we could stand against anything outside the power of Christ? And if you are unteachable, and reliant on self, brace yourself for the impact because you're about to fall. 
But verse 13 gives us hope. Take heart. You don't have to fall because verse 13 says this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We're human. We face temptation. Every day we battle. But here's the answer and here's the hope. God is faithful. What a stark contrast to self-reliance. Self-reliance or God is faithful. Our ability to stand, our ability to not fall, our ability to escape, all boil down to God is faithful and having the right heart of God-reliance. There is hope. There is ability. There is endurance to the end as long as we have God-reliance. The lessons of the past are there to serve as warnings for the future. I'm sure we've all heard this quote, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. My prayer for this, for us in 2024 is that that will not be said of us that we failed to learn from the past. Learn from the Israelites. Learn from the Corinthian church and all the struggles that they had. Learn from your previous failures and setbacks. And stop making an idol of self and get God planted firmly back on the throne of your life. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 says this concerning Daniel. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. You see, Daniel had already made up his mind who he was going to worship and who was going to be on the throne of his life regardless of any and all circumstances. May 2024 be a year that is exemplified. Exemplified by how we resolve to worship the Lord in all things, at all times, as we wait for his return. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you recorded the good and the bad of your children, that we may learn from the example. Father, thank you for being pure and holy and righteous, and yet gracious and merciful. Father, what an awesome verse. When it says, and some were like that. Father, we were all hell-bound sinners that you plucked out of that path. You restored us and you made us new creations in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, may this year we strive to honor and worship you like never before. We ask this in your name. Amen.